Welcome to the Entrepreneur's MBA, bringing you lessons from real-life entrepreneurs they don't teach in business school. Here's your host, business coach and marketing strategist, Adam Kipnis. As entrepreneurs, there are multiple things that might hold us back, right? We, we, we have an idea, we have drive, we take action, but there are things that can hold us back. And two of the biggest things that, that maybe hold people back and we want to learn more about are fear. Why are we unwilling to do the hard stuff or why does some stuff feel like the hard stuff? And the second side is sort of self-reflection, really understanding who we are, what we're putting out there, what we're thinking about. Can we look at ourselves almost from a third person point of view? Those two things by far plague entrepreneurs from ultimate success. So we're going to dig into those today, learn more about them, learn how to overcome them and ideally learn how to spot them in ourselves. I think that's part of the self-reflection portion of it. This is Adam Kipnis, host of the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast, hosted by C-Suite Radio and sponsored in part by The Wine Ambassador, the nation's fastest growing wine club. If you are a wine drinker and want hand-picked wine delivered to you, go to wineadam.com and check out what they've got going. It's a very good thing for wine club members and people who just love to drink new and different small winery wines. Today's guest is a speaker, author, mental health advocate whose mission is to help those around her design the lives they love waking up to. And I think we all want that. Jesse Beyer, thanks for joining today. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you got it. I'm, I'm excited about this conversation. Is um, Not because I'm excited about fear and self-reflection, but I'm ex <laughs> always excited about learning a little bit more about how we can be better entrepreneurs. And I think these are two topics that really are at the heart of it. But give us a little of your background. Like how did you get, one, to start your own business and two, this particular, um, these particular topics? Yeah, absolutely. So my first foray into entrepreneurship was actually when I was 13. I was a freshman in high school. Maybe I was 14. 13 or 14, I was a freshman in high school. And I coordinated three iterations of a run-walk fundraiser that benefited some local families who were struggling with the death or illness of their child. Now at that time, I was my only team member, so I was doing everything from social media to legal permits to budgeting to sponsor acquisition to volunteer management. Like I had it all on my plate. And that was a really interesting experience because I had never done anything entrepreneurial before. My family is not entrepreneurial. No one that I knew was in that space. And of course, I just walk in. I was like, okay, we're going to make this happen and just kind of ran with it. And since then, I've kind of narrowed my path down a little bit. I did some speaking, again, starting when I was 13 as my first presentation on throughout college. And it was really through my high school and college years that I started to see how many people around me were struggling. I was going through my own struggles, both with my identity and what I wanted to do with my life and this tension between what society and what my family expected me to do versus what I was being called to do and how that played out and things like that. And I saw that so many people were struggling with the same thing. It's like every person you talk to, every other word out of their mouth was should or have to or things like that that just didn't incite a lot of passion in me. Like I don't want a life of shoulds and have tos. I want a life of choosing to and wanting to. And so as I started to see all of this, I was like, you know what? I, I worked through this myself. I can really lend some knowledge here. I can share some information. And so I started just having really informal conversations, not really coaching, but kind of like, hi, tell me your problems and let me see how I can help you. And started doing that with some friends and family of mine. And then really just kind of fell in love with the stage. 
it was in college that I was actually teaching women self-defense. And so I was in front of groups. I was doing workshop style things pretty frequently. And I loved it. I mean, I, I love that opportunity. I love being able to teach and being able to share my energy and being able to do all of that in front of a group of people. And so I started doing more and more of that. I put a course together. I did speaking, you know, across the country. I actually just got back at the time of recording from presenting on this topic at a small college in Indiana. And so I just love doing that type of stuff. And, and now I'm at the point where I'm so happy to say I get to do that for a living. This is what I do full time. And I get to go travel across the country and I get to write and I get to read and speak to people. And it really is just all about the connections for me. From that very beginning of my entrepreneurial journey, when I started that fundraising work, it was about the connections and it was about helping people. And it was literally what the logo or the slogan of the event that I hosted was, it was a community of courage and just seeing people come together in one place around a common person or a common cause was so powerful. You just felt that in the room or on the track or wherever you were. And that's really what's guided me through my entrepreneurial journey, you know, through um, those fundraising initiatives through speaking at women's self-defense all the way to what I'm doing now in the personal development and mental health space. It's just that community and that sense of helping people that's really brought me to where I am today. I love it. I love it. Thinking back to that, the, the fundraising that, and that first entrepreneurial experience, did you know at the time that you were being entrepreneurial or did you just go and do? Oh, I had no idea. If someone was like, you're an entrepreneur, I would have been like, you're insane. So no, I had no <laughs> idea. I was literally just ignorance on fire doing Google research all the time being like, how do I find a sponsor? What does a pitch letter look like? How do I fill out this legal form and just going with it? That's awesome. And it just, it's interesting the way the language you used in talking about budgeting and logistics and these things, that's obviously very businessy terms that you've probably learned through you know, your, your life since then. So that's why I was wondering if it was like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Um, but so, so you did that and then you, you learned through yourself and through your own, your own actions, your own reactions and your own realizations that you had this ability to connect with people and understand where they're coming from or where they're, where they're stuck. Mm -hmm. As you work with people, like how do they, how do they know? Let's get, do the self-reflection side first. How okay. do they even know? So, some of us are so stuck in our thing that we don't even realize we're not being reflective. So how do you yeah. start with people there? Absolutely. Well, just to, to illustrate this point with a story from my own life, I, my first year out of college, I went to veterinary school in Scotland and I was going to be a vet. That's what I thought was the right path for me. And once I got three, four months into the program, I just felt so stifled and so unfulfilled and uninspired and unengaged. And I literally just wanted to bang my head off the desk all day long. And it was that feeling of wanting to crawl out of my own skin and out of my own life that a lot of people start to feel when they realize that, oh, maybe this isn't right. So in a lot of the conversations that I have with people, they'll come to me and they'll say, hey, I don't know, this, this just isn't feeling right. Like, what do you think I should do with my life? And I always turn that back around. I was like, it doesn't matter what I think. What do you think you should do with your life? <laughs> and, and really walk them through that. So from a logistical perspective, the first thing that I do with people is an exercise that I call the word associations game. And it's basically a process of writing your own dictionaries of what you want these adjectives that you use to describe your life to mean. So we're always told to build a life that's successful and fulfilling and to find happiness, but no one ever asks us what those words mean for ourselves. And so this exercise enables you to take 
all of the societal expectations and standards and set them aside and just dig into what you want those words to mean. And I have a list of like, I think 25 or 26 words that we go through. So it's not just those three, but writing your own dictionary and figuring out, okay, what do you want? Like set down the expectations, set down the standards, set down the fear, set down everything. This is you and a piece of paper. What do you want? And then from there, you can start to build and overcome hurdles like motivation and focus and fear and all of that. But I always start with just that question of what do you want? What do you want your life to look like? And, and is that something that that's evolved over time? You said you started working with sort of friends and family and then it became a business and you fell in love with the stage and now you speak and now you speak to audiences and, and obviously now people come to you. How, mm -hmm. how did that evolution work in your business? Yeah. So like I said, my first presentation was when I was 13. I was a valedictorian in my middle school and got asked to speak at the commencement ceremony. And it was really bad. It was really, really bad. <laughs> I was so nervous that I asked my friend to co-speak it with me and we alternated lines and it was, it was atrocious. So I'm happy to say I have since improved my speaking skills, but it was really just kind of this evolution of being presented with opportunities to speak and to have conversations. That's really what everything is based on for me. So even when I am on stage, I want to have conversations with people. At the, the gig two nights ago that I just did, we literally sat around the table for a full hour and a half after my presentation, which was twice as long as my presentation was. We sat there for an hour and a half and just talked and shared ideas and answered each other's questions. And it was, it was amazing. So with being presented opportunities like that through school speaking opportunities, through leadership positions in clubs, through the women's self-defense that I taught, I started kind of piecing that together. And it really took a while for me to understand that I could actually make a business out of it. I thought that personal development, I thought that speaking, I thought that writing and things like that were things that people did on the side because they thought they were fun. I didn't think that I could actually make a business out of it. And so I, I started researching, not researching is a loose term. I started looking at people on social media that were speaking for a living, people like Rachel Hollis, Jess Ekstrom, people like that, and seeing how much of a difference they could make. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I should try this. And it was through that whole process as well, kind of a simultaneous process that I was recognizing that I didn't want to do a nine to five. It was not for me. It was not a fit that I wanted. I wanted more flexibility and freedom, both to work 18 hour days and to work zero hour days, like both ends of the spectrum. I wanted that flexibility there and realizing that, but then believing that what I wanted to do wasn't a career. Like I couldn't make a living out of it definitely put me in kind of a little bit of a lurch. But like I said, once I started seeing examples of people who were doing what I thought I couldn't do and proving myself wrong through that, I started seeking out those opportunities and pitching myself to the media, to podcasts for speaking opportunities, you know, even just like local chamber of commerce things, just getting myself out there and being on social media and connecting with people. And it all just kind of started to piece together like that. And a speaking business and a coaching business and, and helping people. Those are really two separate, two separate businesses, right? It, it's almost different skill sets. One is how you help people. And the other one is, is getting booked and finding speaking gigs and, and getting recommended. How do you bifurcate your, your own business to do the two separate things that you need to do that get you paid? Yeah. So logistically, it's definitely different. I'm not going to cold pitch a client with like, hi, here are all my media features. You want to work with me? <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But I, I would challenge you in the sense that it is very similar because it's based both in conversations. Like some of the exercises that I do with one-on-one -on -one people are things that I will do on stage. I will say, right, take out your journal. We're going to do part of the sport associations game right now. So my presentations are very interactive and my working one-on-one -on -one with people is very uh, communicative and presenting of information. So 
once I get in front of people, it's really not that different for me. It's all about kind of the logistics on the back end. And then I still show up as myself with the same energy, with the same knowledge. And sure, the delivery is going to be different to a crowd of 300 versus one person because it's going to be more question and answer, back and forth and things like that. But even on a stage, I still will stop in the middle and ask this random person in the audience, like, hi, stand up. We're going to do this together. Let's chat about this and have time for question and answer at the end. So it's not as different as, as you might think is really what I'm getting at. And when you started the business and you, and you said that you followed people and, and obviously the best thing that we can all do is follow someone that's doing what we want to do and, and model ourselves after it. Where did it become a business? Like where did the business aspect of, all right, I've got a P&L, I've got to plan my calendar, I've got to fit in my, my clients, I've got to do all of this. Where did it businessify, if that's a word itself, from yeah, no, just going out and speaking? We'll make it a word. So for me, it really started my senior year of college because before then, I'd been dabbling. Like I was on social media. I ran some ads. I was working with a coach. I put together a course. And so I was doing things, but I was really mentally treating it like a hobby. And even though I knew I didn't want a nine to five afterwards, I was like, oh, well, this will just like spontaneously grow. And obviously it didn't. <laughs> it was really my senior year of college where it was kind of like an oh crap moment of I'm graduating in nine months and I got to support myself. And is this going to be it? Like, am I going to make this work? And so the biggest mindset shift for me that honestly changed it to a business from a logistical perspective as well, is I started investing in myself. I started working with speaking coaches, business coaches. I started reading a lot of self-help books from a business perspective and a personal development perspective and really just started immersing myself in the business community. And that helped me understand that this wasn't a hobby. This was something I could make a living off of. And I think part of that doubt was what held me back from trying to make a living out of it. It was like the self-fulfilling prophecy. But I invested in myself. Like I said, I started getting involved in the communities and things like that. And that's really when I took off, you know, like I got QuickBooks, I put an LLC in place, like did all of the logistical things that started making a business. I built my team. Um, so yeah, it was really that concept of investing in yourself and realizing that you can do this, but you got to actually do this if you want it to work. And where did you learn to invest in yourself? That's a really great question. And I think it was just sheer terror that forced me to invest in myself. It was kind of that moment of like my business, my business, my hobby business is not growing. I don't know what I'm doing. Google isn't helping me. No one in my family or friend group is entrepreneurial. And I just enrolled actually in one person's um, online, you know, like bi-weekly coaching program sort of thing. I was like, I'll just see what she has to say. And then she started giving some golden nuggets. And I was like, oh, maybe this is worthwhile. Things are starting to shift here. <laughs> and uh, it really, like I said, kind of just took off from there. And I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of really great people, both coaches and partners and things like that. And that's something that continues to this day? Yes, absolutely. I think that's a huge staple of my business. And where do you focus your, your personal investment uh, dollars today? Is it, is it continuing to grow in your field? Is it continuing to grow in yourself? How, how do you allocate those dollars? Like, what do you look for? Yeah, I look for people that have done it before and then I invest in what they offer. So that could be a book, it could be a coaching program, it could be an online course, something like that. I have run Facebook ads. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Given that I'm focusing a lot on, on I'm sorry, on speaking right now, Facebook ads aren't as helpful with that because it's really about building those one-on-one -on -one connections with event coordinators or directors of student life at colleges or whatever that is. So for me, I really focus on 
people that can help me build my business and building relationships with them. Like I said, through partnerships sometimes, and also just through investing in their books or courses or coaching programs. We're talking with Jesse Beyer on the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast with Adam Kipnis. You can find her at Jesse Beyer International. That's J-E-S-S-I-B-E-Y-E-R international.com. I want to talk a little bit about the speaking business because mm-hmm. there, there, there's multiple ways to get yourself paid through speaking. Obviously, one is paid talks. Another is maybe you sell a program from stage. Another is maybe it's free, but you have the opportunity to gather connections and emails that, that you can then market to people later. How do you mm-hmm. focus your speaking business? Because I know a lot of people that listen, speaking is a desire, but they have no idea how to go about it or, or how to make any money at it. Yeah. Well, like I said, ignorance on fire definitely applied to starting to speak as well. Um, I have done all of those things. I get paid to speak. I will host like small business training workshops and I will sell at the end of those. I have done free talks where maybe I get a stand that I can talk to people, you know, like a vendor booth sort of thing, or I'll get referrals or testimonials or do a virtual presentation for free. So I don't have to travel and, but I still get that connection. So I've done kind of that whole thing. Um, but I personally like getting paid to speak up front the most because it's guaranteed income. You don't have to invest anything to travel and hope that you can get a return on the back end. Uh, but that being said, if you can sell well, and that's a different skill set than being able to speak well, those are two different things. If you can sell well and you know your numbers and you know that, okay, I can convert 30, 40, 70, 80, whatever percent of the room into clients at this rate then you can kind of make up your own speaking fee in that way. But for getting those paid speaking gigs, I focus a lot on the college market because A, Campus Life Directors and Panhellenics, and that's a Greek organization governing body sort of thing, um, they're always looking for programming events. They're always looking for things in personal development and mental health. And that's a really good match, especially for my message of like, shuck what the world has to say and step into yourself is really applicable for college students because they're just stepping out into the world. They're just becoming adults. They're just starting to make their own decisions. And so it's easier to get them on the right path than try to correct someone who's say 60 or 70 years old and have been doing this thing their whole life back onto the thing that they've always wanted to do their whole life. So I just do honestly a lot of direct outreach. I I get some referrals, which is fantastic and we'll totally play up those. But when I was starting, it was just a lot, like literally thousands of emails of direct outreach to strategic connections on campuses across the country and in Canada as well. And just reaching out and saying, hi, here's who I am. Here's what I do. Do you think we could work together? Let's hop on a call and, and just try to take it from there. And that's, it's a great transition. In, you are a doer, right? You just put yourself out there and you said, I'll figure it out. There's a yep. lot of people that have the same skills and the same background you, but they just something's holding him back. And so we'll transition a little bit to the fear side of the equation is obviously there's no one reason, but what do you see in that fear side of what people, entrepreneurs, especially new entrepreneurs go through that, mm-hmm. that, that you've seen over and over again? Yeah. So I see three major fears pop up. I see a fear of failure. I see a fear of making the wrong decision and I see a fear of other people's opinions and those pop up all the time, all the time, because it's so new. If you've never been an entrepreneur before, it is completely different than any nine to five, any part-time job, any educational experience you've ever had. 
And so stepping into that and, and being able to say, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm going to do it anyway, is terrifying for people. And you get all these well-meaning family members that are like, did you know that only 1% of businesses succeed and that women rarely make overs, you know, whatever these statistics are that they throw at you to try to keep you safe. But then you get them in your head and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to fail. I can't do this. And then fear creeps in and all of these things start to come together. So I see that play such a huge role for people as they start businesses or really any new chapter in their life. Is there a way that you can help the, the listeners sort of understand that the overcoming the fear of the no, right? As, as any entrepreneur, you have to be a good in sales, typically, unless you have a really cool product that you're able to build. And mm-hmm. a no is a positive because you're closer to a yes. And that's not just a saying, that's not just trying to placate people. That's a real thing. How do people think about it differently? See, that's so funny. You just said that thing about a no being one step closer to a yes, because I hated that saying for (laughs) so long. I was so annoyed by it. I'm like, that literally doesn't make any sense. And would start pulling out my calculator because I'm a major math nerd. But um, (laughs) so it's really funny you bring that up. And, And the way that I like to look at it is that a no is always a learning opportunity. So just to give an example, when I pitch someone to speak, I have a series of three emails that I send. One is my original pitch. One is a, hey, did this make it to your inbox sort of first bump thing. And then my last email is, hey, sounds like it's not a great time to work together. No worries. If you have two minutes, would you mind letting me know why not? I'm always looking to improve and would love to learn from you. And I get a lot of feedback from that of people who wouldn't have replied in the first place, but they reply back and say, sometimes things that are helpful, like your pitch was wrong in this way or other times like we don't have it in the budget or whatever that is. But you can learn a lot from no's and you can really improve and things like that. But my biggest tip for approaching no's is just to get more no's. Honestly, when I started, I would cry pretty much over every no. If, if someone was even slightly short with me when they said no, or like just we're not interested, period. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible person. How dare I reach out to them? And you know, just totally got in my head. But the more no's you get, the more you recognize that it's not what you offer. It's their perception of their situation in regards to what you offer. So you can have the best product in the world or the best service or whatever you're selling. But if they are unwilling to make room in their budget, if they are unwilling to even chat with you about what this looks like, if they just see your subject line and are like, we don't even want to talk to her that's not your problem. Like you, you can make your subject lines better. You can adjust your pricing. Sure. There's things like that. But if someone is so stuck in their mind of not working with you, there's nothing you can do to change that. And then probably be an annoying client anyway. So a get more nose B learn from the nose and ask for feedback. If that's something that you're comfortable with and C recognize that it's very rarely about you. And when it is that you can adjust accordingly, if that's, you know, something that's in your wheelhouse. Definitely. Definitely. And I'm a big believer in if I don't offer, I may be depriving somebody of something they really need, right? Mm-hmm. They, they don't, if I don't say, Hey, this is how I can help you or give them thoughts or make an offer to them. If they really needed it and I didn't offer it, then I'm actually hurting them when I could be helping them. Mm, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Something else I'd say as well is that I do a lot of pitching, which is why I keep going back to pitching. And if you do press work, it's pitching too. So there are a lot of really sleazy ways to pitch someone with like lots of bold headlines and underline this and like all capital letters over here. And for me, whatever the marketing gurus say, that's just really uncomfortable for me. I don't feel like it's an alignment. I don't put my good energy into that. I feel really stressed and nervous about it when I send it. 
And so what I have thought about as I offer something to someone, whether it's a speaking gig or working together, whatever that is, is how would I want to receive this? So if I got an email from someone saying, hey, can I come speak at your campus? What would I want that to sound like? What would the tone be? What information would I want in that email? And then I just write that email. And when you do that, it helps you feel a lot more confident in what you're putting out into the world and what you're asking or offering to other people. And that also helps those no's feel less harsh because you put your honest and authentic self into it. It wasn't this like sleazy, slimy thing that you sent out into the world. Yeah, we don't like sleazy, slimy things that we send out to the world. Ask another question sort of about your process. And you said that you solicit feedback and you utilize that feedback from your nose in different things that you do. But tell us a little bit about your sales process. So when, when you started and you reached out and you sent thousands of emails and then to where you are today, how did, how did you think about the messaging and getting to your three email process that you use today? Yeah, it's really a combination of different coaches that I've worked with. So one coach that I was working with, she's amazing. I love her. Her name is Jacqueline DiGregorio. She's a speaking coach. And she shared some ideas for how to reach out, gave like a, a sample pitch letter, suggested reaching out to the Greek organizations and the student governments. And so I had that bit from her. And then I was working with another organization for email list building. And they had a pitch sequence email template. And I liked some of that. And then I was working with a PR person, not necessarily all of these at the same time, but they kind of overlapped. And I was working with a PR person, like I said, and she had a follow-up sequence template that she let her clients use. And I kind of picked and pulled from those and put them together into the sequence that I have today. The other thing that I did is that when I was sending those thousands of emails in the beginning, I would split test a little bit. So I'd send 200 people this email with this subject line and then 200 more people the same email with a different subject line and I would compare open rates and reply rates and so what I concluded on for my speaking pitch was that whatever the highest open rate was that was my subject line and whatever the highest reply rate was that was my pitch email and then like I said the follow-up sequence and things like that um, came from a conglomeration of those different people I also interestingly enough I don't know why this was such a focus for me for a while but I was really concerned about what to put in the email signature because I know that if you send someone this giant email, like eight paragraphs, they're probably not going to read it. I know I wouldn't read it. And so I was really trying to parse down my pitch email, but then I was like, well, I want to say something about my press features. I want to say something about my contact information where they can find my press kit, maybe share a testimonial in there. And so I spent quite a lot of time figuring out what to put in my email signature and how that was going to look as well. So all of these pieces really from these different people that I worked with and learned from came together and I just pulled the pieces that I liked from all of them and made up the sequence that I have today. Love it. And, and it sounds like you spent a fair amount of time, you know, working on the business rather than in the business, which is another one of those cliche things. I'm going to try mm -hmm. not to throw too many more of those out, <laughs> but it, in you're, you're thinking about the business in different ways where a lot of people get caught up in doing the work and because they're, they want to help people and they focus on being great practitioners and great at what they're doing. How do you find the time or, or allocate your time to do both of those things? Because they're both important, but people, I, maybe it's just by nature, put off fixing the business because they're so worried about getting business. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's really easy to put off fixing the business because you're just doing the same things over and over and over, sending the same, same uh, pitch email, posting the same social media things. That's really easy to do because it's simple and it's repetitive and it's kind of mindless. Um, so two, two things that I do there. Number one, I have a fantastic intern or set of interns, depending on when you're talking to me. Um, that do a lot of the busy work sort of things. So they manage my social media. They help me find contact information for people. So I don't have to do those nitty gritty things. I can come in and apply my level of expertise and my research that I've done from, you know, looking at different pitch letters and things like that into the process. So that is amazing. I love them. They're so helpful for me. The second thing is that I am too impatient to get stuck working in the business instead of on the business. If something isn't working, I refuse to do it again. And I get some of the coaches <laughs> that I've worked with have been like, Jess, give it time. And I was like, I've given it 13 hours. That's enough time. And, you know, so I've learned some patience as I've gone along, but that process is still, I think really helpful for me because I'll see, okay, I sent out these 500 emails and only 3% of people replied. I'm not going to send out another email until I devise a new way to send out said email. And that really kind of forces me because of my own mindset to do the research and to work on the business and to learn and to improve and to fix instead of just doing the same things over and over and over and over and over again. I love the way that you put everything into very easy processes that we can follow. And candidly, you're answering the, the next question I'm always about to ask with your <laughs> answer. So you're making this really easy on me. Uh, last question for me as we wrap up, whether it's someone who just it, is just even not overwhelmed with fear, but they know that, that fear is a barrier for them mm-hmm. or they're, they're not seeing themselves in their best light. They, they feel like they could be better, but maybe they think, oh, they put themselves down more than they lift themselves up in some ways. What mm-hmm. are uh, like one or two things that, that people can just start to do? Obviously, they need to go to your website at jessiebuyerinternational.com. There's free resources there that you can get from her. That, that can help in this process, but how can they think about this as they finish listening to the podcast, they're in the car and they're like, all right, what can I do now? Mm-hmm. My biggest tip for finding the motivation to make changes in your life or to overcome fear is to really connect with your why. And that's my cliche phrase for the day, but I'm going to dig deeper into that so that we can actually understand what's going <laughs> on here. So when you have your why, and this is what I actually teach people in my course and with my clients, so you're getting a little sneaky peek here, but when you have your why, there's three parts to it. There is the why, like, why do you want this thing? There is the determination if it's internal or external, and then there's the emotional connection. Most people only look at that first part. They're like, I want to lose 20 pounds because whatever, whatever the reasoning is. But when you're able to dig deeper into those next two, which I'll explain in a second, but when you're able to dig deeper into those, it makes that why so much stronger. So internal versus external, an internal why is something that you're doing for yourself. So it makes you feel a certain way. It achieves a goal for you, whatever that is. An external why is trying to make someone else think a certain way about you. So I'm going to lose 20 pounds so that my partner will think I'm more attractive. The issue with that is that you will put in all of this work to make the change in your life and their opinion of you will not change at all because you cannot make other people think a certain way. So when that happens, not only is your self-confidence dashed, but your confidence in the concept of improving your life is dashed as well. So it's really hard to come back from that. So as you're evaluating your why and you're saying, okay, why am I building this business? Why do I want this financial goal? Whatever that is, make sure it's for yourself instead of someone else. That third piece, digging into the emotional connection, it's much more motivating to say, 
I want to run a marathon because I want to prove to myself that I can do hard things and build my self-confidence than to say, I want to run a marathon because I want the t-shirt and medal that are at the end. Both of those are valid whys and they're both internal whys, but the medal and the t-shirt is going to lose its shine when things get rough or fear pops up or whatever that is. That emotional connection, something that you can literally feel in your gut is going to carry you through those hard times. Now, when it comes to fear, the biggest reason that people get stuck in their fear and prevent themselves from moving forward is because their fear is stronger than their why. If their why is stronger than their fear, they're willing to take steps through and past and over that fear because they know that the life that they're creating on the other side is worth it. Yes, they might be trembling the entire time they work through that fear. They might still be absolutely terrified, but they're willing to take action anyway. And that's the key piece. So whether you're feeling like you're stuck in a rut, you're feeling like you want some changes, but don't really know how to get started with that. You're feeling like you're stuck in fear. Go back to that why. Make sure it's internal. Tie it into some emotional gut, visceral feeling, and then use that to, to motivate yourself to overcome that fear or to move through those changes in your life. I love it. And, and we could do this all day. I mean, I, I love your energy. I, I, I appreciate your, your candor and your openness just to tell us the real deal. Uh, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate your time and the knowledge you just gave us all. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I had a great time chatting with you. Yeah, you too. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. Look forward to having you all on the next episode. You've been listening to the Entrepreneur's MBA. Download Adam's free book, How to Make More Money in Your Business at www.freebookfromadam.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>